Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The Dutch rose to greatness from the riches of the sea. From their massive cargo and warships to their small vessels and fishing boats, they commanded the high seas and inland and coastal waterways, becoming leaders in maritime travel, transport, and commerce. Yet the water was also a source of pleasure and enjoyment. In the warm summer months, dune-covered beaches offered scenic vistas, while in the winter, frozen canals offered a place for people of all ages to skate, play, and enjoy the outdoors. In this lecture, held at the National Gallery of Art on July 1st, 2018, Alexandra Libby, Assistant Curator of Northern Baroque Paintings at the National Gallery of Art, discusses the essential, multifaceted relationship the Dutch maintained with the water, as seen in the exhibition, Water, Wind, and Waves, Marine Paintings from the Dutch Golden Age. Though I have been working on this exhibition since I arrived here in late 2014, the idea for this show has been floating around uh, for, for much longer, um, in part because of the gallery's extraordinary holdings in this genre, um, but also in part because as we continue to do exhibitions of Dutch art, and reflect on the 17th century, their golden age of art, culture, wealth, power, we realize that so much of it is owed to their relationship with the water. Um, it was said in 1673 um, by the English ambassador to The Hague, Sir William Temple, that the Dutch were the envy of some, the fear of others, and the wonder of all of their neighbors. And this had everything to do with the water. With their massive fleet of cargo ships, the Dutch traversed oceans to become the leaders in international maritime trade and transport. And through their mighty warships, they commanded the high seas and defended the Republic against foreign rivals. They established a herring fishery empire in the North Sea with their vast array of fishing boats, and with their yachts and barges, they navigated local estuaries, rivers, and canals. The water was also a great source of enjoyment. In the warm summer months, winding country rivers and secluded watering holes provided opportunities to swim and enjoy the outdoors. While in the winter, frozen canals were a place for people of all ages to take pleasure in a day on the ice. Given the essential connection the Dutch had with the water, it really is little wonder that marine imagery became a favorite subject of artists and collectors alike. From quiet, calm seas and harbor scenes, um, and frozen canals to tempestuous seascapes, dramatic shipwrecks, um, and fierce naval battles, artists like Jan van Goyen, Albert Kaup, Ludolf Backhausen, and even Rembrandt portrayed the water in great numbers and with extraordinary variety. Now, I have to admit uh, from the outset that our title is a little misleading because the show isn't just paintings. It's also prints, drawings, rare books, and very excitingly, ship models. And it's not just marine or seascape images in the strict sense of the word, because it's a show dedicated to the watery world of the Netherlands, um, an exhibition that at its heart is about the essential and multifaceted connection the Dutch had to the water, its rivers, its harbors, its estuaries, its canals wet and frozen, as well as the sea. With more than 600 miles of continuous coastline and estuaries, a series of major rivers, and countless canals and waterways, water defines the Netherlands. And here what you're looking at is a mid-17th century map of the Netherlands, and you can see that it's called the Belgica Federata, right up here, um, which is, just as a quick refresher in your Dutch history, um, was how the northern provinces of the federalized Netherlands came to be distinguished during their long revolt against the Spanish crown, which had controlled all the provinces of the Low Countries. The revolt lasted from 1568 to 1648 and was thus aptly known as the Eighty Years' War. Um, and after the revolt, the crown maintained control over the southern Netherlands, which consequently um, referred to as the Belgica Regia, or the Royal Netherlands, versus the Belgica Federata. In any event, water, water everywhere. And what you see up here, where's my clicker, is um, the North Sea, or Nordzee, which runs the length of the coast. Um, and then here, you have the Southern Sea, the Zouderzee, 
um, the inlet opening to the North Sea, which acted as a massive fishing ground, a major crossroad and highway for shipping, and during the 80 Years' War, a battleground. Uh, and then, of course, you have all these arteries and veins um, and the various waterways that crisscross the Netherlands. And I don't know that you can travel anywhere in that country today without encountering, at minimum, a canal or a stream. And that's 2018. There is a popular modern saying that God created the world, but the Dutch created Holland. And this is because during the um, late 16th century, the Dutch embarked on the largest land reclamation project ever. Between 1590 and 1664, they reclaimed over 200,000 acres of land from the sea and lakes by means of dikes and drainage. The land area of North Holland alone, which is, whoops, <laughs> excuse me, which is this area up here, um, increased by over 50%. And these efforts continued well into the 20th, 20th century. The Zouderzee, for example, was closed off by dikes as recently as the 1930s. Now, given the omnipresence of water in the Netherlands, you would think that water had long defined Dutch art, too. Certainly, some of the most iconic images are maritime-themed, like Albert Kaup's Maas at Dordrecht, which is a majestic waterscape in which warships, yachts, ferry boats, and even kitchen boats gather on the Maas River on a glorious sunny morning. The painting shows the arrival of a large transport fleet of 30,000 Dutch soldiers in the mercantile hub of Dordrecht in July of 1646. And according to the Dordrecht history books, the soldiers gathered for two weeks basically as a show of force against the southern Spanish Netherlands in advance of the peace negotiations um, surrounding the Eighty Years' War that would conclude two years later. The demonstration wasn't, in the end, consequential in the broader course of Dutch political history, though it went down in the annals of Dordrecht city history, um, but it sure did make for a beautiful painting. And if you just look at that light, the gleam and the clarity of it. I grew up on a lake outside of Manhattan, um, and that light feels so familiar to me as the light of a summer morning. The amazing peachy glow in the clouds, the way that it illuminates the sails of the boats gathered in the harbor, that is summer. And look at the boats themselves, how he's distinguished the different vessels from, from one another. The yacht over here, flying the tricolor flag, um, to this wonderful little uh, vessel, which is called a plight um, in Dutch. It basically commonly used as a ferry boat. And then look closely at the people who beat the drums, who blow the horns, or who simply converse and motion and gesture in short, the people who bring extraordinary liveliness to this composition. Paintings such as the Moss at Dordrecht have become synonymous with Dutch Golden Age or 17th century paintings, so much so that it might be surprising to know that scenes such as this were a relatively recent phenomenon. Shortly before 1600, an artist from Harlem, Hendrik Vroom, began to turn his attention to the sea as no artist had before. And painters of earlier periods, they certainly represented the sea in bodies of water, um, but the genre of seascape painting did not have an independent existence before this time. So Rome, um, he was born in Harlem to a, to a family of artists, and he, he was fascinated by the sea from an early age, and he spent large parts of his career traveling from the Netherlands to Spain, to Italy, to Germany, to France, to England, sketching Mediterranean harbors, the river traffic on the Rhone, um, and even executing naval battle scenes. During this time, Rome also sailed on numerous transport vessels, and he even endured a shipwreck off the coast of Portugal, which is actually a great story. Um, and so as it goes, the only reason that he um, and his companions were saved was because the paintings that he had had on board washed ashore. And while 99 out of 100 of them were of ships, one was an altarpiece. And so this altarpiece convinced the Portuguese that the marooned passengers were Christians and not English pirates, and that's why they decided to save them. Then the story becomes more exciting because he tries to get back to Holland, and he boards a ship, but he has a premonition that it is going to sink, so he gets off the ship, and it does sink. So he's afraid his family thinks he's dead, which of course he's not. Then he ultimately gets home to his wife, who fortunately had had her own premonition that he was still alive, so she wasn't surprised to see him when he finally came home. Um, clearly, his experiences gave him firsthand knowledge of the ships, 
the ropes, the rigging, and above all, the power and the splendor of the sea. And armed with these experiences and understanding that there are a lot of boats in Holland, thanks to the simple fact of their topography and that they're in the midst of this 80 years war, which was fought largely on the water, he begins to create images of single ships, great convoys, stormy seascapes, fierce naval encounters, and quiet harbor scenes, all of which were not only exactingly accurate, but exceedingly beautiful. His fleet at sea, which is what you see here on the screen and in our show, pictures the broadside of a 24-gun warship accompanied by several coastal fishing uh, and cargo boats as they pass through a harbor. And as you can see, Rome possessed a keen understanding of naval architecture, as well as um, a masterful ability to imbue energy and life into his scenes. Now, in this painting, the ships bustle with activity. Figures congregate on the decks and scale the rigging, and they even sound trumpets, announcing the fleet's arrival. And quite wonderfully, Rome matched the dynamism of these figures with his lively rendering of the sea, employing intense contrasts of iridescent greens and soft blues to convey the water's changing depths, while applying delicate touches of white I love these, um, at the wave's crests, to indicate the wind whipping across the water surface. These scenes of maritime activity were instantly popular. Painted at a time when the supremacy of the Dutch Republic's shipping industry had created enormous wealth for its citizenry, which in turn stimulated a booming art market, Rome had a steady stream of commissions from merchants and maritime empires, like the Dutch East India Company, which was founded in 1602 and possessed um, basically a monopoly on trade from the Indonesian archipelago, or the Dutch West India Company, which was founded in 1621 and had exclusive rights between Africa and South America. At the same time, because the Dutch were in the midst of their war of independence from Spain, which was waged in large part on the sea, and in fact the early rebels called themselves sea beggars, sea beggars because they were basically operating as privateers against the Spanish, um, these circumstances essentially ensured Rome's popularity with Dutch admiralties, magistrates, and municipal organizations. And I have yet to identify this strip of land right here, and it may just be fanciful. Um, however, this painting is fascinating to me because it could have appealed to either a merchant or an admiral. As you see, even though it's a warship, the Navy was not only deployed against foreign aggressors like the Spanish, but it also protected the nation's growing commercial interests by ensuring free and safe passage for the fleets of the East and West India companies. So the painting could easily have belonged to someone with a military or a merchant background. Thanks to Rome, images of both commerce and conflict became enormously popular. And naval battles between victorious, always victorious, Dutch crews and their Spanish foes were particularly popular and the principal subject of many of the early marine paintings. Cornelis Verbeek, um, who, whose painting you see here, he was also a native of Harlem, and he spent much of his career depicting battles against Spain during the Long Dutch Revolt, such as this naval encounter between um, Dutch and Spanish warships. And although the exact battle Verbeek represented is today unknown, and again, maybe imagined, um, what we see is at left a Spanish galleon, which is identifiable by its um, red royal standard flying from the mast, firing its port side cannon toward a Dutch warship. And you can see that the Dutch warship is much smaller than the galleon, um, which is great, you know, large, multi-deck, square-rigged. Um, but this allowed the Dutch to maneuver more easily, especially in the shallow waters along the coast. And when combined with the skill of the commanders and the sailors, these smaller ships were a large reason that the Dutch were able to defeat their heavily armed adversaries. Now in this detail, um, you can see that the Dutch have already sunk a ship because you see this mast here um, dipping below the waves. And we think that the sinking ship is most likely a Mediterranean-style galley, which was a type of vessel that the Spanish um, designed to combat the Dutch advantage of maneuverability. Um, and it clearly didn't work. <laughs> Besides um, the sinking galley, you also have this yacht right here whose inhabitants have begun to panic. And these are the narrative details that I adore in marine paintings because you see these people jumping overboard um, while several others are clinging to driftwood, beseeching the Dutch with prayers. And you even see a cleric right here 
holding onto a crucifix, so you know that's how you know they're Spanish. Um, then in the background of the painting, you see a second Dutch vessel has overtaken another Spanish galley, and a close look shows smoke billowing from the sails, um, figures again throwing themselves overboard. Whether real or imagined, this painting would have served as a nautical metaphor of triumph against a, a foreign aggressor and the supremacy of Dutch maritime power, which was a theme that maintained its appeal long after the Dutch achieved their freedom from Spain. In the 1650s and 60s, a series of trade wars broke out with England, another maritime rival, which provided ample opportunity for artists to chronicle naval events and visit fleets fitted by the Dutch, mainly to prevent the destruction of the mercantile uh, interests. And among the artists in C2 capturing this fleet and these moments was Willem van de Velde, the elder. And Willem van de Velde, the elder, uh, was originally from Leiden, where his father um, had been the master of a transport vessel, which supposedly a young Willem was aboard when the Leiden militia mobilized for an expedition against the Spanish. Um, but he later moved to Amsterdam and was, from the outset, a painter of ships. Soon after the outbreak of the First Anglo-Dutch War in May 1652, Willem goes to Den Helder, which is way up in North Holland, about 45 miles north of Amsterdam, to sketch the Dutch fleet setting sail for battle. And soon thereafter, he begins to sail with the fleet to sketch their activities. And these sketches, which are known today, are extraordinarily precise. The ropes, the rigging, the sails. He even made notes on the names of the flag officers. And so you can see that writing right up here. After the war, um, he was quite busy creating large paintings from those sketches as there developed a high demand for accurate, attractive images of ships. Um, and among the types of paintings that he pioneered in the 1650s were so-called pen paintings, um, which is a technique he clearly used uh, on this work in the show. And these are works on panel or canvas, but um, they basically uh, they resemble elaborately worked out detailed pen drawings. Now in this pen painting, you see several large ships at anchor flying Dutch flags in choppy waters near this broad, sandy beach. Travelers, or maybe crew members, um, are making their way to and from the shore in wooden rowboats met by horses and carts. And I zoom in here because um, there are just so many wonderful details in this painting, um, which I hope you will go see afterwards. Now, unfortunately, we don't um, know exactly where this is or what the ships um, are that we're looking at, despite the fact that their sterns are in full view, which is usually a prime um, piece of the puzzle in figuring that out. The yacht at left has a um, uh, large tree on the taffrail, while the large armed frigate at the center has these two rampant lions holding the coat of arms of the House of Orange. Um, so if anybody knows what these ships are, you can feel free to find me afterwards. Not long after Willem the Elder painted this work, his son, Willem van de Velde the Younger, joined him in the studio, and the father and son duo soon became two of the most celebrated marine painters of the Dutch Golden Age. Like his father, Willem the Younger specialized in ships and important naval battles against the English and produced monumental commemorative works, sometimes years after the event had taken place, as is the case of this painting, um, titled Four Days Battle of, 11, of the 11th to 14th of June, 1666, but which he painted in 1670. Um, in this dramatic scene, you see two very famous ships of the Amsterdam Admiralty. At left is the Love, and at right, the Golden Lions. And they're setting sail to confront the English in a conflict during the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Um, this was waged in the southern portion of the North Sea, and it saw a very badly outnumbered English um, suffer heavy casualties by the Dutch under the command of the famed Admiral Michael de Ruyter. And the battle was one of the largest and the longest fought during the Age of Sail and went down in the Dutch annals as a glorious victory. This painting is enormous. I mean, not quite as large as you see here on the screen, but five by six and a half feet. And the level of detail is extraordinary. The ships are all identifiable. Um, as I said, the Golden Lions, um, which based on the decoration here, and this was a vessel built in the, um, in the yard of the Dutch East India Company in 1665. And then we know that the other ship is the Love, in spite of the stern being hidden, because scholars were able to compare the number of cannons, 70, within the fleet lists against the specific type of woodwork. 
The Love had been the flagship of de Router several years earlier, and during the Four Days Battle was under the command of a captain named Peter Salmons, who in fact lost the ship during the first day of fighting. And closely looking at the vessels, you see just an incredible amount of detail. Um, aboard the Love, for example, you see crewmen busily stowing a half-raised anchor right here against the hull, which is very dangerous in choppy waters. It weighed hundreds of pounds. And if it smashed into the side of the boat, it would inflict serious damage. So as we see here, as soon as the anchor breaks the surface of the water, it's grabbed with a hook on a block and tackle hanging from the cathead, which is um, that horizontal beam. You see this guy in red, you see the horizontal beam um, extending from the ship's bow. But one of the things that I think catches your eye about this painting um, is the mood and the atmosphere, which is quite dark. Um, you see these very dark clouds rolling in from the left. The water is choppy. The Dutch um, flags on top of the masts are blowing really stiffly. The top sails, which are those large stretches of canvas right here, um, they're set and they're full. However, the top gallants, which are above those, have already been furled. And in Siemens terminology, this was done when the wind had reached the strength of a wind force five, which is, by the way, defined as a fresh breeze, um, which sounds lovely to me, except that it's 20 to 25 mile an hour winds. The Golden Lions on the right with its stern to us is beginning to take in its uh, fore topsail, which happens when the wind force is five or six or a strong breeze. And now we're talking 25 to 30 mile an hour winds. So in other words, the artist has depicted the ships in bad weather that's about to get worse. And then adding to the excitement of an anticipation, especially for the love, which as we know, isn't going to make it. Thanks to the great success of maritime artists like Rome and the Van de Veldes, marine painting flourished as an independent genre and the road was paved for other painters to explore the artistic possibilities of the watery world around them. And among the many artists to answer this call was the author of this image, Rainier Gnomes, who called himself Zaman or Seaman, a nickname that makes it virtually certain that he once had a professional career as a sailor. Um, he became a highly respected painter, draftsman, and graphic artist, thanks to work such as um, this that you see here on screen, which belongs to a three-part, 36-print series called Various Ships and Views of Amsterdam. Gnomes, who was from Amsterdam, was particularly interested in that city's bustling harbor, its waterways, and the types of boats plying its waters, all of which he explored in these prints, 24 of which are on view in our exhibition. Now up here, you see an image of two merchantmen, the Yellow Fortune and the Love, not to be confused with um, the Admiralty ship in the Vendevelde painting, because you know, not surprisingly then as now, there were certain names that were really popular, so the love then was probably the equivalent of today's serendipity or the codfather or something. So these are both flutes, um, sometimes called flyboats in English. And these were ships that enabled the Dutch to maintain their mercantile edge. Flutes had a lengthened hull um, relative to their width and a wider keel so that they could sail quickly and with, and with less draft. And as a result, their three masts allowed for more sailing, adding to their efficiency um, and speed. And because of their lengthened hulls, they also had considerably larger cargo capacity than other ships. Then on top of that, they were usually only moderately armed um, and needed a smaller crew. So in short, they were light, fast, cheap, and efficient, which is a pretty good combination. <laughs> now the ships I'm showing you here were designed specifically for the Baltic grain trade and the Scandinavian lumber trade. Ostervarder, um, which you see right here, basically means Baltic bound and Nordsvarder, meaning um, Norwegian bound. And these commodities, grain and lumber, were essential to the Dutch economy. Timber, of course, specifically to the shipbuilding industry. By the mid 17th century, the Dutch Republic was the greatest sea power in the world, thanks to this maritime trade. The Dutch East and West India companies connected the globe through a vast network of trade routes that stretched not only to the Baltic and Scandinavia, but also to the Caribbean um, and Indian Oceans, to New Amsterdam, New York, um, Asia, transporting all kinds of good, lemons from Italy, salt from Brazil, exotic spices, silk, porcelain, rare flower bulbs from the, rare, uh, from the Far East, and then of course on a much darker side, slaves through the transatlantic slave trade. 
And Gnomes' prints are filled with portraits of ships acting in these capacities, with the exception of the slave ships, which are very rarely depicted in Dutch art. Um, but there are also images of small transport vessels, pleasure crafts, fishing pinks, and some of my favorites are the really unusual ones, like houseboats. Um, and here you're seeing a woman doing her laundry. And over here, possibly cooking, and I love the plants on the back of the boat. I don't know, maybe your tomato plants. Um, the night boat that took you to The Hague, Delft, Rotterdam, or even just close-up views of Amsterdam Harbor that convey the full range of activity in this great seaport. In this image, you're looking at Bickers Island, which is one of three man-made islands just west of Amsterdam. And these islands had been um, incorporated into the city in 1612, and subsequently, um, Jan Bicker acquired one from the city and developed it um, into shipyards, warehouses, and a residence for himself. Now what you're seeing here um, at left are Bicker's shipyards and hulls under construction, um, supported by scaffolding on dry land, and then um, one uncompleted one in the starboard profile um, in the center. And on the right, what you see is the guard house, or the boomhausje, as it was called in Dutch which is where the guard controlled the traffic entering um, and leaving that section of the harbor basically by placing a floating tree trunk or boom um, or chain across it every night. Gnomes clearly made an impression on the Bicker family because about six years later he executed this beautiful painting. Um, and when we acquired this painting in 2011, it was um, just thought to be a harbor scene. However, for the crack research of one of my colleagues, Henriette, um, who not only knew immediately what the city was based on the fencing, um, and then the different ships based on the decoration, which she discovered through her, as I said, incredible research, we now know Gnomes' exact viewpoint, which is the northeastern shore of Bicker's shipyard. And in the shipyard view, what we see is a warship and three merchant ships undergoing maintenance and repairs. To the left of center, you see two men um, on a temporary platform suspended above a railing, um, and they're using fibers and pitch to caulk the hull um, of the large three-master. A workman on the large raft below is basically tending, um, tending to the vat of hot pitch suspended above the fire. But you also have a couple of small boats tied to the raft. You have this man in a blue jacket who's bringing in his nets, a fishing trap. Um, and then you have these two women leaning over their little skiff um, ostensibly doing their laundry. And this canopied boat right here in the foreground is a tour boat, because then, as now, people thought Amsterdam was really interesting and, and sightseers toured the port. So while the sort of commotion and bustle um, of life on the water was a clear draw for gnomes, there were other artists who were equally drawn to the water's tranquility and to its natural beauty. Artists like Jan van Goyen, who was particularly interested in atmosphere and weather conditions, often incorporated coastal and inland waters into his compositions, but largely as a way to explore the different effects of the light on the water's surface. So in this view of Dordrecht from the Dortskill, the painting shows a rowboat and a small fishing boat known as a cog, ferrying passengers across the Moss River. This nearly monochrome palette is really just such a symphony, I think, of ochre and gray tones. And when combined with the thick layer of hovering clouds and limpid sails, it, it imbues the scene with a certain tranquility and serenity that totally belie um, the activity of the water traffic. During the 17th century, um, barges and ferries busily transported goods and passengers along the banks of the inland waterways, across the countless canals connecting towns and villages with extraordinary efficiency and regularity. Um, the creation of land brought the creation of canals, um, and the Dutch established a great system of inland travel as a result. Between 1632 and um, 1665, they created over 400 miles of towing canals, straight canals along which a horse-drawn um, barge transported passengers. And one could go by these barges um, from Amsterdam to Harlem in an hour, with trips leaving every hour, from Harlem to Leiden in two hours, Delft to The Hague in an hour and 15 minutes, with bells announcing departures and captains getting fined if they were late. Um, but such traffic and commotion is unimaginable in Van Goyen's languid scene, in which the only conceivable sound is the gentle lapping of the water against the shoreline. 
it hardly seems possible that this is nearly the same location as the gathering of 30,000 soldiers in that, um, in that Kaup picture, which we saw just a moment ago, which took place only two years later than Van Gogh painted this. And you can see that this is about Kaup's viewpoint when he painted this work. And even when Van Goyen did depict Dordrecht with a bit livelier traffic, as you see here, and this is about Kaup's viewpoint now in his scene, um, it's still such a different emphasis than in Kaup. While sailboats and rowboats team with people, and this one in particular, which is pretty packed and it's about to get a little bit uh, more crowded, um, the most active elements of this painting are the billowing clouds sweeping across the sky or the changing colors of the water. Another artist who saw beauty and peace in the water was Salman van Roustal, and one finds time and again ferry boats such as this in his oeuvre, filled with passengers and a few livestock being pulled across a tranquil river. Um, despite the density of the group, which represents all echelons of society from these wealthy travelers seated in their horse-drawn carriage, um, to this peasant woman who's sitting here nursing a child, um, a child who one retired curator who I won't name, um, once identified as a chicken. Um, <laughs> it's still just an incredibly serene image. Fairies, of course, serve people of all classes. But here, it feels less like a document of reality and more like a commentary about the feeling of community that the water provided. The whole scene has this incredibly bucolic feel with the central cluster of trees bending towards the river, the subtle reflections in the water, the soft tuft of clouds that you know, move beautifully diagonally through this bright blue sky, a weather phenomenon, by the way, that Roustel rendered with such accuracy that the head of the mesoscale atmospheric process branch of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center identified them as a type found on cool days in mid to late spring. Now, at the time that Roustal painted the scene, the Netherlands was at the height of its barge and its canal construction. But this painting doesn't show that new mode of transportation. Instead, it depicts the old-fashioned poling, which lends it the sort of air of, I think, romantic nostalgia, or perhaps simply pride in the land, which must have been a very powerful feeling at the moment Roustal painted this image, 1649, which is just one year after the Dutch formally gained independence from Spain. For other artists, moments of tranquility and the luminous beauty of the coastal scenery were not only splendid, but also spiritual. Simon de Vlieger, like other Dutch marine painters, knew the sea and the ships that sailed it intimately. In this painting, he is at once capturing a common scene of boat maintenance, two workers applying pitch to the hull of a small cargo ship that's resting on the sandbar at low tide. But at the same time, he is capturing a phenomenon that many believe to have religious meaning. Most of the composition here is given over to the, a breathtaking sky as sun rays burst through the clouds. These rays are sometimes referred to as God's rays or um, the fingers of God. And for many in the 17th century, as today, nature was seen as a manifestation of God's bounty and the harmony between man and nature as a sign of divine blessing. The Dutch believed in the 17th century that they were a chosen people. And during the 17th century, they described their land as an Arcadia. And de Vlieger, who also executed prestigious church commissions, including a stained glass window design for the Nieuwkerk in Amsterdam, and then also an organ screen for the St. Lawrencekerk in Rotterdam, very way may well have considered the dramatic effect of this atmospheric occurrence to be a confirmation of God's blessing. The awesome power of the watery world was something that the Dutch were both grateful for, the bounty provided by the sea, but also wary of. Netherlands literally means low lands because it is lo located largely below sea level. During the early 17th century, uh, tidal deluge was a constant threat and arable pastoral acreage was scarce, hence the massive land reclamation efforts. And as I mentioned previously, some 200,000 acres of land were reclaimed. Over a third of that came from um, windmills pumping water into a complex networks of dikes, canals, and locks that helped control the water levels. Some actually believe that the ability to reclaim the land was divinely ordained. There is this 16th century hydraulic engineer who once wrote, the making of new land belongs to God alone, but he gives some people the wit and the strength to do it. 
So in other words, the special favor of the Almighty had delegated the Dutch a kind of license in the act of a terrestrial creation. Um, the result was that through the land reclamation efforts, coupled with global um, exploration, their feelings of nationhood and prosperity became deeply enmeshed with the water. Of course, the system, however sophisticated, was not fail-safe. And when the dikes broke and the land flooded, the land flooded. And on top of this, storms at sea were common and devastating. When storms battered ship at sea, lives and cargo were lost. And these losses were felt across society, affecting sailors, merchants, fishermen, passengers, and of course, the families that depended on them. Few paintings capture the threat posed by a storm as compellingly as Ludolf Backhausen's Ships in Distress off a rocky coast, here seen on the screen. And in this image, what you see are Dutch cargo ships being pounded by violent winds and rolling waves as they struggle to stay clear of these perilous rocks ahead. Such a fate has already met one ship whose cargo and mast are seen here floating in the water. And looking closely, you see all these anxious sailors in the remaining ships working to bring their vessels under control as the waves crash against them. The mainsail of the ship it left is in fact so strongly filled with wind that it's starting to bend under the, under the weight of it as it barrels towards this other one on the right that has already turned into the wind and is in the process of furling its last sail to just sort of ride out the storm. These sorts of preparations means that the weather is the equivalent of a wind force nine or 10, and now we're talking a gale, and that's 45 to 65 mile an hour winds. But all may not be lost. The Dutch took pride in their ability to prevail against such calamities through perseverance and faith. And this optimism in the face of peril is represented by this beautiful golden light breaking through the clouds at the left, which seems to signal that the storm will pass and that the ships will survive. In Willem van de Velde, The Younger Ships in a Gale, the outcome seems a little less certain. And I'm looking specifically at all these figures um, who seem to be holding on for dear life. And you've got this guy's swimming to the rocks, these guys who have made it, this one clinging to driftwood, and of course this poor fella right here who's sort of uh, who's hanging out on this line attached to the bowsprit. Now, Rocky coastlines like this are not native to the Netherlands, which enhances the sense of drama because here we're clearly looking at foreign waters. Quite cleverly, however, van de Velde has suggested that those most in peril are the English. This vessel right here is topped by an English flag, while this over here is the Dutch. So while uh, the English may not make it, the Dutch, of course, will. In uh, this nation of sailors, the taming of the water was not exclusively a matter of survival, but also a pleasurable undertaking. Van de Velde the Younger produced a great number of exhilarating scenes as well, including ships in a stormy sea, which pictures a cog um, right here in front charging across the rolling waves. Viewed um, from its starboard side, close hauled to the wind, which just means its sails are in tight and it's sailing as close as possible to the wind, the cog triumphantly breaks through the waves, spray breaks across its bow, and this burst of sunlight illuminates the taut sails and silhouettes the figure of the man who, totally undeterred by these steely gray clouds, is just gesturing onward. It is an incredibly dynamic image, um, like the works of the stormy seas, but instead here, the energy is much more about the thrill of being on the sea rather than the terror of it. <laughs> And indeed, the water is, in the end, an extremely pleasurable place for many, although it had everything to do with the formation of the Dutch Republic, its independence from Spain, its thriving economy, its transportation infrastructure. During the 17th century, it was also a place to congregate and enjoy nature. During the winter months, young and old, rich and poor, would take to the ice as the hundreds of canals bisecting cities and connecting towns froze over. And because the Dutch Republic was and is such a nation of skaters, festive scenes on the ice became very popular in the first half of the 17th century, which was a time that experienced some of the severest winters of the so-called Little Ice Age. The sense of freedom it provided is wonderfully captured in this highly finished drawing by Hendrik Overkamp, Winter Games on the Frozen River Isle, 
which shows people of all ages skating, socializing, riding in sleighs, playing a game of golf, which is the sort of precursor to a or combination of hockey and golf. Um, Overkamp was among the first artists to specialize um, in, in these depictions of the winter, and much like Gnomes was to harbor scenes, he seemed to delight in the activity on the ice. Certainly, when Adam von Brain turned to the subject, he enjoyed um, the activity and the liveliness of it too, and you see this painting is filled with wonderful, lighthearted vignettes. Um, you have this very fancy couples um, conversing while a page assists them with their skates. You have this man and woman just gliding along hand in hand, being approached from a young boy um, from the Amsterdam orphanage, and you can tell it's him because of his half black, half red shirt, who's just sort of taking the opportunity to ask for alms. And then you have these two racing off right here, um, and you can see that the leading skater is wearing a hauk, which is which is this, um, this hat. This was a popular headdress for women consisting of a flat round disc with this sort of small upstanding spike and then a floor length black veil. But the, uh, the pants of our fleeing figure identify him as a man and his quick pace and the other guy in hot pursuit um, suggest that the skater is more likely a hawk thief um, fleeing a crime than I suppose a cross-dresser. Um, I'm not sure that the summer months were quite as exciting, but certainly men and women would stroll the country, taking in its rivers, or gather on a dune-lined beach to cool off and enjoy the breeze off the water, or head to a swimming hole dappled with shade to cool off. Rembrandt, um, who is an artist we don't typically associate with the watery world, was of course known to walk the outskirts of Amsterdam, finding in its water views an understated beauty that he would translate into etchings such as this, his bathers. Um, an intimate rendering of summer leisure. We see men have come to this isolated spot to find respite from the heat. And with this remarkable um, liveliness and yet economy of line, he conveys the dense foliage of this private location. And a series of sm small marks suggest the stillness of the water, while the figure's languid postures evoke the lazy mood of a hot day. Given the importance of water in all aspects of Dutch life, it really is little wonder that marine subjects became a favorite of collectors and artists alike. And the enthusiasm for marine imagery found expression in a wide variety of media that of course also included ship models. In the 17th century, the Dutch had a flourishing and modern shipbuilding industry that was the envy of the world. Dutch ships were fast, more easily maneuvered, and efficient and this was in spite of an extremely complex industry. Here what you're looking at is the backyard of the East India Company warehouse and the arsenal for the Amsterdam of Admiralty, uh, the Admiralty of Amsterdam. And um, if you know Amsterdam well, you'll know that this building right here is now the Maritime Museum. Shipbuilding was easily the most sophisticated of 17th century enterprises. It required naval architects, uh, a large workforce expert in many unusual trades, and then a broad range of really hard-to-find materials, like massive and naturally curved hardwood timbers for hulls, um, straight-grained oak for decks, pine and fir for masts, flax for sail-making, hemp for rope-making, iron for anchors and other fittings, and then just miscellaneous substances like pitch, tar, tallow. And then you've got the dockyards themselves. Here is another view from that same compound. In the Netherlands, there was a sprawling complex of slipways and docks. Those lining the eye at Amsterdam made that city's the largest operation in the world. But nearly every Dutch seaport had at least some shipbuilding capacity, including um, uh, the Admiralties had operations, not only in Amsterdam, but also Rotterdam, Horn, Enkhuizen, Harlingen, Middelburg, Vlissingen, and several other minor sites. Um, and the Dutch East and West India companies also had their own shipyards. Uh, the East India Company shipyard in Ostenburg alone was the largest in Europe. It had 1,400 workers on site. Um, and that was not only warehouses for the goods and items amassed by the fleet, storage for supplies, a forge, a steam box for bending planks, a slaughterhouse, a pharmacy, um, not to mention sheds for all the buildings um, or the ship's constituent parts. Ship models are a vestige of this industry. Meticulously crafted with elegant carvings and gilding, they
they replicate the famous merchant vessels or warships. Constructed in the shipyards by the same men who built the Dutch fleet, models often ended up in, um, on display in the offices of shipping companies or the headquarters of one of the admiralty boards that collectively administered the Dutch Navy, or possibly in a private collection of someone connected to the industry. So in this painting from the exhibition, what you see is a boy playing with a miniature three-master in a little basin of water, probably in a park. And with his fancy yellow and gray striped suit over his shirt with these lace cuffs and rollers, uh, lace cuffs and collar, and his blue shawl trimmed with gold braid draped over his shoulder, he's clearly someone of status. The painter, Peter van der Werf, signed and dated the canvas 1696 which was the same year he embarked on a portrait series for the directors of the Rotterdam Chamber of the Dutch East India Company. So that makes us think that, um, that this boy was probably one of the children of uh, the directors. Models of a modest scale, like this wonderful 17th century model of a states yacht, which is about 40 inches long, were commonly owned by private collectors. The owners of this work um, likely had a connection to the Admiralty of Zeeland, as the rounders on the taffrail depict the Zeeland coat of arms, which is this, the, it's a red lion emerging from the water. And then the red castle of Ardenburg, which is a small coastal town in that province, um, perhaps the town where the owner of this ship lived. From the Dutch word yacht to hunt, yachts were light, swift vessels designed to carry out the various harbor duties of regulating shipping, collecting revenue, and preventing piracy. A yacht's small hull, like you see on this model, would have allowed it to go through shallow waters, and then the lee boards attached to the side, these big paddles right here, helped to stabilize its course in the absence of a keel, um, a design that also allowed it to sail the shallow waters around the Dutch coast, um, which of course would have been particularly advantageous if you're a crew charged with chasing smugglers. Now, although the identity of the model's owner um, is no longer known, it's easy to imagine that he may have even worked for the Admiralty in this capacity um, in the fight against the smugglers because the stern decoration is dominated by this man right here, a hunter replete with a musket and hunting bag. And then you see these two figures right here on the stern's quarter also portray hunters. Now this Dutch Admiralty yacht, on the other hand, almost certainly belonged to the Admiralty itself because it's about 66 inches long and 70 inches tall, which is again a size difficult to judge here, but when you see it upstairs, it's big. Now large models such as this were often commissioned for a boardroom um, of a large organization such as one of the five Admiralty boards of the Dutch Naval Administration. Because Admiralty yachts not only functioned as harbor ships, but also acted as the private vessel of the Admiral during naval wars, they were celebrated ships in their own right and tended to copy elements um, of the large warships. So as we see in the Dutch Admiral yacht, they would have had rich carvings um, for the figurehead, deck, and stern. And then copying the big ships, they also had um, balconies extending from the quarter and fitted with glass windows. Yet their structural differences from those large warships, the shallow draft, the leeboards, are what made them so effective for carrying out their open water activities. And let's see, if I have a little time, I do. I want to show you one last model that will greet you as you walk into the show. Now, it's actually English, perish the thought, um, but it is magnificent um, and relevant to our show. The Royal James First Rate. This was a 100-gun warship designed in 1668 um, by Sir Anthony Dean, who was a famed master English shipwright for King Charles II. And this ship launched in 1671. It was an extremely important ship because it was the first ever to use iron in the construction of the vessel rather than just in the hinges and fittings and the like. And of course, you would never know it to look at it. Looking at it, you'd think it was just made of gold. Um, but when you go up to the exhibition, this will be the first thing you see, and you must take it in because the decoration is glorious. From this figurehead, which although um, Charles II dedicated it to his grandfather, James, uh, King James, it looks an awful lot like Charles. And then you have all this other extraordinary detail work. Now, as I mentioned, um, models were built in the shipyards by the same men who built the fleet, 
And this model was owned by the very man who designed it, Sir Anthony Dean. He made it for himself. And it remained in his collection for a number of years um, until the renowned 17th century English diarist um, and also clerk of apps and member of the Navy board, Samuel Pepys, encouraged him to donate it to the mathematical school at Christ's Hospital in London, which was not actually a hospital, um, it was an orphanage, foundling hospital, for seamen's children um, where they taught navigation and naval architecture. Anyway, it remained there for 225 years until the school moved out of London in 1902 and they didn't take the model with them. And so then after that, it basically entered into private hands until it was purchased by the current owners um, who very generously lent it to us for the show. Now, why is it in our show? Um, well, the ship, as I said, it was designed in 1668 and launched in 1671. Uh, it was sent to the opening of the Third Anglo-Dutch War in 1672. And on the eve of that battle, the Earl of Sandwich, Admiral of the Royal James, believed that the fleet was vulnerable where it was anchored in Sol Bay off the English coast. He thought that the Dutch might surprise them there. And despite his warnings that they should leave, the English didn't. And the Dutch, led by Michael de Ruyter, who um, was also uh, leading the Four Days Battle, they did appear and attack the English. And although Sandwich maintained his own on the heavily gunned Royal James for a time, he was ultimately overtaken and the Royal James was set ablaze. The Dutch were enormously proud of their watery world. They explored it in paintings, prints, drawings, and models that are as beautiful as they are varied. Whether summery water views, or wintry skating scenes, stormy seascapes, or quiet harbor vistas, these images tell the story of the marine activities that propelled their economy, of their seafaring prowess that ensured their independence, and of the, na the natural beauty that assured them of God's presence. In this nation of seafarers, the popularity of marine imagery may not be surprising. However, the extraordinary range of marine images they produced is remarkable nevertheless, and it speaks to the all-encompassing importance of water in the Dutch Golden Age. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.